The reading is taken from Revelations chapter 21, verses 9 to 14, and can be found on page 1249 of the Pew Bibles. One of the seven angels, who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Psalm 122 can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 622. I rejoiced with those who said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Thank you very much for those readings. I'm sure all of us remember family trips when we were young, going to see relatives. I'm sure a lot of those trips were fairly dutiful but dull trips. But often there was that one relative, I'm sure there was for me, and maybe a favoured aunt and uncle or a favoured grandparent, who visiting was actually wonderful, really great fun, something to really uh, genuinely look forward to. Maybe they had nice biscuits or a a really big garden to run around in uh, or a big TV screen to watch uh, or maybe just genuinely lovely to be with, lovely people to be with who took interest in us as people. Or whatever it was, uh, there's often that relative or that close family friend uh, who the news of going to their house was a cause of great rejoicing. And when we were told by our parents, we're going to go and see them today, our hearts leapt for joy. On a big scale, that's kind of what's going on at the beginning of our psalm today, at the beginning of Psalm 122. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of Aunt Maud. No, to the house of the Lord. I rejoiced. Great joy. In another translation, I was glad. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Not just the excitement of the visit, but the excitement of the anticipation of the visit as well. Looking forward to actually being there. 
And it's not just, of course, a favoured relative they were excited about going to see up in Jerusalem. Uh, that's not uh, necessarily where Aunt Maud lived. But they're excited in this psalm because that's where God himself had his special place of dwelling under the old covenant, in the temple, in the midst of that city of Jerusalem. They were going to see God himself, the living God, the source of all joy and of holiness and of happiness and truth and beauty, the one whose word is perfect, who acts righteously, and all of whose ways are just. They were going to see him, and therefore there was sheer joy, sheer wonder. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. The emotion of that verse is caught by lots of people who've written musical renditions of this psalm, most memorably by Parry in his 1910 uh, I Was Glad, the coronation anthem that's played at every British coronation and other occasions as well. I'm not going to try and sing it for you from the pulpit, uh, but I love to hear it when it comes on the radio. Uh, I was glad. And so I text around a number of my friends with just that word, those words. I was glad when I hear it. And we have a little bit of a race to see who can hear it first on Radio 3 and text around about it. The emotion continues into verse 2 of the psalm as well. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. That's the, the wow verse. We're actually here. We've made it. We've got to the actual gates of the city, the city where the house of, the, of God is. This is the emotion of the young child who's been told for months and months and months about Disneyland and has been told he's going to meet all of the actual Disney characters from the films he's been watching. He's going to see the fairy tale castle. He's going to experience the rides. Maybe he's going to get a, a queue jumper ticket to go on the rides quickly. And he's going to have great fun. And he's got the thrill of making it there. Wow, I'm actually here. Uh, the plane has landed. The bus has taken me to the park. We're out of the hotel. My feet are within your gates, uh, Disneyland. Uh, the more grown-up version, our feet are within uh, the, the more uh, first, second millennium BC version. Our feet are within your gates, O Jerusalem. The thrill of making it. Or maybe you get that a little bit as well. Maybe you get the thrill of getting somewhere that you really look forward to. Maybe it's um, an air show at Duxford or a favoured museum somewhere around the world or a, a, a music concert. You have the thrill of, I've made it here. My feet are within your gates. I had a little bit of that sort of emotion, actually, when I did visit the modern Jerusalem a few years ago for a conference. And I stood within the, the Jaffa Gate, which is the main western gate of the old city of Jerusalem, took a little picture of myself, a tourist selfie, sent it round some friends uh, with that verse, uh, Psalm 122, verse 2. Uh, My feet are within your gates, O Jerusalem. Pretty excited, having heard uh, for so many years in sermons and Bible studies about Jerusalem. But, of course, that was a little bit of a misapplication of that verse for a Christian uh, in the church age. Because, of course, both the temple and the city, as it then was, were completely destroyed 2,000 years ago in 70 AD. And the city of Jerusalem we see today uh, does not resemble the city of Jerusalem that's being written about by David. And certainly, most of all, it doesn't have the presence of God in the temple that it did have then and the special significance that it had in that psalm. Those special things about it, those unique things about it, are gone. 
There's a new city of Jerusalem, of course, which was built hundreds of years later. But that gate that I was standing in, that gate that I had a tourist selfie in, the Jaffa Gate, that was only, disappointingly, built in 1538, would you believe us, uh, by the Ottomans. So it actually has no equivalence with the gates of which this psalm actually talks. So as you can see, I was uh, misapplying my Bible verses in my text message. But the good news is that although Jerusalem has lost its significance in that way, God does still have a dwelling on earth. And it's not just in one place, but actually with all of his people. Because by his spirit, in the church age, since the destruction of the temple, God dwells with his people individually and collectively as they meet together. And therefore, the wonderful excitement of verses 1 and 2 of this psalm are not lost forever. Uh, We haven't lost them with the destruction of the temple and the uh, disappearance uh, of God's dwelling from that place. But we still have them as believers in the Lord Jesus by his spirit living in us, in the temples of our hearts and among us as we meet together. And so we don't have to just reserve that excitement, that joy of I rejoiced and our feet are standing within your gates for those few times a year when the Jews would go up to Jerusalem for their festivals. But instead, every day uh, with the Lord, we can have that joy knowing that he is with us by his spirit. Every Sunday as we come to church, we can have that joy knowing that we are going to meet with God's people and he is going to be, be there among us, even if there's only a few of us over the summer holidays and we're down to just two or three because Jesus promises that where two or three are present, he is there with them also. Unfortunately, of course, we know all of us that the reality is sometimes a little bit less joyful and a little bit more like those dutiful, uh, slightly staid visits to the less interesting relatives. Why is that? Why do we sometimes find uh, Christian life, uh, Sunday worship, a little bit like that, rather than the pure joy, the sheer joy of these opening verses of Psalm 122? Well, I wonder if one of the main reasons is because we forget who it is who's dwelling with us, who it is we're going to meet with, that it is God himself, the living God. And we forget the joy and wonder and truth of that. This is the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, who has made himself known through Christ in all of his compassion and glory and patience and kindness. He is with us by his spirit every day, and he's with us as we meet in his name. And so we can have that joy with us always. Uh, Tom's mentioned that we're going through this series of the Songs of Ascent, uh, these Psalms 120 to 134 over the summer. These, of course, were the Psalms that the Jews sang as they went up to these festivals in Jerusalem, to the Temple of God. And the joy at the presence of God that opens this psalm is magnified as they reflect later in the psalm on what God has done for his people, as they reflect on the community that's gathered in Jerusalem. Uh, The psalm talks about Jerusalem in verse 3. Jerusalem is built like a city. It's not just talking about bricks and mortar there, not just talking about the stones of Jerusalem, but it's referring to the community that gathered at those festivals as they went up to Jerusalem, and by extension, therefore, the nation, God's people as a whole. These verses 3 to 5 in the middle of the psalm uh, tell us a few things about what God does for his people, four things in particular, that he gives them unity and assembly, worshipfulness and order. 
Some of you might remember a series of books which came out about, I think, 10 years ago called The Nine Marks of the Healthy Church. Here's one of them here. This is my show and tell for today. Uh, This is on church discipline. Uh, There's also books on things like exegetical preaching um, and um, so on. A little funny response to that, written by some friends of mine a little bit later on, a book called 39 Marks of a Healthy Church, which, of course, draws inspiration from the 39 Articles of Religion. Um, And uh, that's sort of an English, Anglican response to the American Baptist series, Nine Marks. Uh, Well, forget Nine Marks, forget 39 Marks, certainly. This psalm has for us four marks of a healthy church, in verses 3 to 5, unity, assembly, worshipfulness, and order. We see, as I said, in verse 3, that God's people have unity. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. There's a deliberate wordplay in the Hebrew there, uh, compacted. Uh, it sounds very much like the Hebrew word for companions. And we're meant to think of not just closely compacted built-together houses, think the little lanes off King's Parade in Cambridge, not just like that sort of medieval street pattern, but also close-together people, uh, shoulder-to-shoulder, side-by-side, in unity with each other, just as the houses of Jerusalem appear to be in unity with each other, built closely, compacted together. Uh, God's people have that unity in their faith, in the faith they confess and which we've affirmed in our creed today. That whatever else may happen, we have fundamental things in common with each other. We might disagree over things like the music to sing, or over the social action projects that we're going to invest time and money in as a church, uh, or even over the chairs that we're going to replace pews with at some point. But despite those little disagreements, we share, as God's people, a fundamental unity in the gospel, in the Lord Jesus Conquering death and sin, and trust in him for life eternal. There are many disputes, likewise, uh, within football clubs about which players to play at particular times in the match, how the manager's doing, whether he's pushing the players too hard, uh, whether to invest in new premises for the uh, football team. But there's a fundamental unity amongst all the supporters of a club that they want their club to succeed. They want it to win matches, to climb through the league they're in, maybe to graduate to a better, higher league, uh, to gain further supporters, and to do well. They're all pushing on towards that underlying aim. Well, as Christians, there may be various things that, on the surface, uh, cause disunity, but we share a fundamental gospel unity, and that's a, a key mark of who we are as God's people, sharing a unity in wanting Lord, the Lord Jesus and his gospel to succeed, to grow in the world for the salvation of people and for his glory. So unity. And then secondly, we read about assembly. It's not just a dispersed unity that the people of God have, but an assembled unit, an expressed unity in verse 3 and 4. Jerusalem is built like a city closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. As we said, these psalms are sung, were originally sung by the tribes as they went up to the three great festivals held in Jerusalem. So whether they were from the tribe of Ephraim or Dan or Naphtali or Zebulun or Reuben or Gad, they would go up, in theory, three times a year 
uh, to Jerusalem to worship. That's perhaps the image that the psalm writer had as he composed these verses, looking on one of those roads going into Jerusalem and seeing uh, many families, tribes, heading into the city where the temple was. The tribes go up, a great sight to see as streams of pilgrims flooded into that city. And if that was a physical manifestation of the unity they had in their faith uh, all the year round, an expression of that uh, to be seen. Now, likewise, football fans today, they don't just want a dispersed unity. They don't just want, uh, in under ideal circumstances, to be stuck in front of their TV screens. But most of them actually want to go and see the match in person, at least sometimes, and to go and be there and experience the buzz of the crowd, uh, to be up close and see the pitch and see things happening live and uh, cheer and uh, be part of the action. I used to live quite near to the QPR Stadium in West London, uh, Loftus Road, and uh, as I looked down uh, from my flat most of the time, the South South Africa Road was quite quiet, but on match days it was suddenly packed, and thousands upon thousands of supporters would flood in from east and west and south and north, uh, across London and beyond to White City Station and to Wood Lane Station, and then they'd head down the South Africa roads to Loftus Road Stadium uh, in their thousands, thronging up. The tribes go up, the tribes of supporter clubs and uh, family groups heading up with great joy and excitement to see their team play and to cheer them on. And it's that sort of assembly that we can imagine happening thousands of years ago in Jerusalem, but on a much bigger scale, uh, not just thousands, but even hundreds of thousands heading up into that city where the temple of God was to worship. Well, today, as we said, there's no more temple. There's no more single place of assembly for God's people uh, in the world. But we have multiple dispersed places of assembly, uh, churches like this, of assembly for God's people um, week by week. And we can have the same joy at assembling that they had assembling for the festival This is our physical expression today of our underlying creedal unity in the Lord. A wonderful thing it is. So unity, assembly. A third mark we have is worshipfulness in that second half of verse 4. The tribes go up to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. The Jews didn't just go up to Jerusalem to twiddle their thumbs and to uh, look at their feet. Likewise, football fans don't go to the stadiums and to the stands to sit quietly and just to listen patiently to what's going on and then file away in silence. No, they go to make some noise, and they went to make some noise certainly at the festivals in Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to admit, I'm, despite having uh, looked curiously on down uh, from my flat at the South Africa Road uh, in London at QPR Stadium, I'm not a football fan. Um, I did go to one of their matches once, which was quite interesting, just as a a local resident, uh, showing some interest. Uh, But mostly I'm more into tennis as a spectator sport, and I've been enjoying a bit of Wimbledon recently. I'm sure many of us will enjoy watching the men's singles final coming up with Djokovic and Kyrgios. How much praise will be given to the winner of that match later today? They'll get photos, they'll get a big silver cup, they'll get a massive cash payout for the winner of a Grand Slam tournament. They'll get their name inscribed on those boards in the members' enclosure in the All England Club. And, of course, they'll get the dance with the winner of the ladies at the ball 
great praise just for being good at hitting a ball over a net. Uh, not not, not a, the most amazing skill, if we're honest. And actually, if God himself were competing in that match, he'd ace all the shots and win every time. But even better than that, we'll give great praise to the winners of this tournament who don't know any of us and who know hardly any of their supporters. And yet God, by contrast, knows all of us perfectly. And how much more deserving, therefore, of praise is he who is so much better, not just at tennis, but at anything, and knows us so perfectly. He is the one deserving of ultimate and all praise. And so worshipfulness is rightly a mark of God's people, both then in Jerusalem, 3,000 years ago, and now and forever. And finally, order, we can see in verse 5. There, in Jerusalem, stands the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. God is a God of order. He is the one who brought order out of chaos at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Out of the disorder that existed before, he brought uh, division and order. And order is a wonderful thing. Sometimes we can be uh, lured into thinking that order means dry systems and a suffocating routine and boredom. But actually, order is what we need in order to have joy and to have fulfillment. It's only through having an underlying uh, orderly system that we can express creativity. And if we didn't have the underlying system of order and law and the rule of law that we enjoy, actually living in chaos would be miserable. God himself gives order to his people. He gave it in Israel, and he gave it principally through kingly governments, the thrones of David set up for judgment in the city of Jerusalem. And he still gives it today to his people. The church is uh, a society that is under government. And there's different forms of that government uh, around the world. One of those nine Marx books, I believe, is on church governments. And church government is a wonderful thing, although it does take different forms in different places. We have our uh, general synod in the Church of England, which is currently meeting this week. And our own Mark Smith is up at that meeting at the moment. Uh, It's a wonderful thing however much we might disagree occasionally with some of the actions of the General Synod, to have a form of church government like that, expressing the order of a small part of God's church. And we do need to continue praying for such institutions to order and govern the church rightly. All of these four marks that we've been through are both statements of reality about how God's people are, about uh, how things uh, exist with them, but also aspirations about how we should further the distinctiveness of God's people. So we do have unity and assembly and worshipfulness and order, but we should strive also ever, ever more for deeper unity and stronger assembly and deeper worshipfulness and true order. And Our praise of God, our joy in God, will increase not just as we reflect on who God is, who it is who we're meeting with, as we uh, come to him day by day, as we come before him on Sundays, but also as these four marks of his people uh, strengthen and become more distinguished. And this is what God is forming us into as we come to him. 
And because we want these marks to strengthen, we pray for the people of God, as we're instructed to at the end of the psalm in verses 6 to 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In this way, may those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. And then for the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. We're committing ourselves to praying that sort of prayer. And verse 9, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Uh, Principally, by praying in this way, we will seek the prosperity of God's people, the further uh, deepening of these marks by praying peace and security. And as peace and security flourish among God's people, so these marks will become evidence. It's obviously uh, sad during the pandemic when we suffered a breakdown of uh, security that's certainly one of those marks, the assembly of God's people, did suffer as a result. And so it's a good thing to pray for peace and security and thereby to seek the well-being of God's people. And let's uh, stop now just by praying those words which I'll lead us in um, at the end of the psalm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that those who love you may be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are present with us always, and especially as we meet together. We pray for your people across the world today as they meet, and that as they do so, their light would go out to all the world as the world looks on and sees the glory that you have set among us. In Jesus' name, amen.